What a great privilege it is to be able to open up God's Word together this morning, and uh, this morning in particular, to be able to finish out the studies that we've been in in both of Peter's letters that we find in the New Testament. So this morning, we'll be at the very end of the book of 2 Peter, and what we'll see at the very end of 2 Peter is some similar things, some thematically similar elements to what we've seen Peter writing about for all these weeks that we've been talking about together. And so if you have your Bibles and want to turn to the book of 2 Peter, we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll begin our study of God's Word this morning in verse 14. Let's stand together as we read the text of the day that the Lord has for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the word of the Lord says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may love your calendar this morning. You may relish the fact that you have a tool by which your whole life can be organized. It may give you an overwhelming sense of satisfaction and organization and accomplishment when you open up your calendar and you know that every single one of your days for the next three years is pretty much already planned out. You may love the fact that there's a definite starting point and a definite ending point and that you can organize your time efficiently in order to make the most of it. And if you're an introvert in the room, you may especially love your calendar because there's nothing like a calendar to extricate you from a conversation that you've been in for just a little too long. Simple statement of, boy, I'd love to continue this into hour six, but I have another appointment on my calendar, is a handy tool just to keep things moving along. So you may love your calendar this morning, or you may hate your calendar this morning. You may hate the fact that when you open up your calendar, you're not going to feel a sense of priority and organization, but instead you're going to feel an overwhelming sense of burden about the amount of things that have to be done. You may hate the fact that you're always moving from this thing to that thing and that every time you look at that calendar, it is a reminder to you that time is your most precious and yet your most scarce resource. You may hate the fact that your life 
is divided into these little segments and would much prefer to have a free-flowing approach to the things that you do so that you can do whatever you want to at a given moment instead of being enslaved by all of those appointments and tasks that take up time on that little app. So you may love your calendar or you may hate your calendar, but regardless of whether you love or hate your calendar, you need your calendar. We all need our calendars. Martin Luther one time wrote a little bit about his own calendar and it's a slightly different take than one that we do, the one that we have. It's not a statement about whether he loves or hates his calendar, but it's a statement about the reality of the calendar. Here's what Luther said in that regard. He said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And of course, what he means by that is this day is literally this day. This day, the one that we're in right now, the one that the Lord has made, the one that is still full of either opportunity or pain. We just don't know. The one which may be full of great joy or might be full of great sadness. The one that might be causing you anxiety or might be causing you satisfaction. There's this day, this day, with all of its challenges, all of its things to do, all of its relationships to be built, all of its opportunities for growth. There is this day, and of course what he meant by that day is that day. The day when Jesus will return. The day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day when God will put everything right and justice will be executed. The day when the sons and the daughters of God will be revealed. The day when the new heaven and the new earth becomes not just a thought but a reality. There's that day. There's this day and there's that day. This day and that day. And this day and that day have been constant themes throughout these letters written by Peter. Peter's talked a lot about that day, the day that is to come, and he's talked a lot about this day, the day that we have right now. And what we've seen him do over and over again in the letters of 1 Peter is draw a direct line of correlation between that day and this day. He has reminded us, in other words, so many times that Christians live this day in light of that day. Now, we do this all the time to a lesser extent. You might, for example, know that there is a day that's coming in the near future when you have a big presentation at work. And because it's an important presentation, that day influences and dictates the way that you live on this day. So you don't just wait for that day that you know is coming. Instead, you make preparations this day. You put together the reports and make your notes and examine all the issues so that you can be ready for that day by preparing on this day. Or there might be a day that's coming soon when your family is going to go on vacation. Well, the wise person doesn't just wait for that day, but you know you have to make preparations. You have to make dinner and hotel reservations and itineraries and different things like that. You prepare this day because of the reality of that day that's coming. Or like many of us in this congregation, you know that there is a day in the next few weeks when you're going to move a child into college. 
Now, that is a day that in one sense sneaks up on you, but in another sense you prepare for for a long time. You think about it. You make tangible preparations for it. You hopefully make emotional preparations for it. In all of these examples, that day, the one out there in the future, that day is not just something that you wait for. That day is something that is so significant that it actually influences the way that you think, plan, and behave on this day. In fact, you might go so far as to say that the true gravity of that day, whatever that day is, the true gravity of that day is measured by the behavior of this day. And so when we turn to the book of 2 Peter and we see Peter writing about that day, we know that he means something even far more significant than any of the examples that we've talked about. When he talks about that day, it is a day of such gravity, of such significance, that everything on this day changes when we truly grasp the immensity of that day that is coming. It is that day that we are looking forward to, which Peter acknowledges in verse 14 at the very beginning of our passage, where he says, since we are looking forward to this, what is this? Well, this is that day. But if we were really looking forward to that day, the day of the new heaven and the new earth, the day when righteousness is real and justice is served, the day when every knee does indeed bow and every tongue finally confesses that Jesus is Lord, if we're really looking forward to that day, then there ought to be something profoundly different about this day in which we are living right now. So to close out his letter, Peter wants to reemphasize a few things about that day and about this day and how those things are related so that we understand that we live this day in light of that day. And the first thing that Peter wants to reiterate here is something that he said over and over again, but to him it bore repeating, and so therefore for us it also bears repeating that he wants to make sure that the reader of his letters understand, first of all, that there is actually a that day. There is a that day. Because if that day, the importance and the immensity and the gravity of that day influences the way that we behave on this day, then the opposite is also true. That if there is not a that day, then the fact that there is not a that day also will influence the way that we behave on this day. And that appears to be one of the main things that has gone wrong in the false teachers that Peter has been confronting throughout his letters is that because they have failed to believe in the reality of that day that is coming, it has dramatically influenced their behavior on this day, and they are leading others to embrace that same error of behavior. Because if there's not a that day, then does morality really matter? If there is no ultimate consequence, if there is no reckoning, then does it really matter the way that we behave on all of the this days 
forevermore? And the answer, of course, is no. That's the logical conclusion that the false teachers had come to. And what Peter wants to say again here is that that day is real. In fact, He wants to emphasize it so heavily at this point in his letter that he doesn't just rely on his own authority as an apostle. He brings Paul into the equation. He says, it's not just I that think this. The other guy thinks it too. We agree on this, that there is a that day, and that day influences the way that we behave on this day. So he appeals to Paul and says, we are teaching the same thing here. Now, another reason why he appeals to Paul is because it seems that the false teachers have actually taken up Paul and co-opted his teaching as representing their own views, saying that Paul agrees with them that moral behavior in the present doesn't really matter. We don't know exactly how they were doing this, but perhaps it's because when they took up Paul's letters, they saw him writing over and over again that salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone. This is Paul's message. By grace, through faith, over and over again. So they took that message of God's grace and corrupted it and twisted it and said, well, if we're living by grace, then behavior really isn't consequential. It doesn't matter what we do because it's all by grace anyway. It doesn't matter. So these false teachers were embracing Paul as one of their own, and yet at the same time, they were drastically misrepresenting Paul's teaching. Paul never taught that grace leads to immorality. In fact, he emphasized over and over again the opposite. And Peter wants to bring that truth back too, to say that Paul does not represent these false teachers, that me, Peter, and him, Paul, we are in lockstep over this issue. Now, Peter does acknowledge, which for us is a bit encouraging, I think, that yes, some of the stuff Paul writes about is indeed hard to understand, which is gratifying for us to read. And yet, it is so important that in our attempt to understand even some of the hard things of the Bible, that we do not swerve from the truth that has been handed down to us. And the truth is that Peter and Paul are consistent. Just a few passages to consider. Here's what Paul, not Peter, here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Well, there is a that day, 
Paul says. And that day matters because that day is going to reveal the quality of everything that's happening in this day. Or this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul, again, finds himself in lockstep with Peter talking about the fact that there is a that day that matters. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul too, yes, there is a that day, and that day is going to be a day of accounting. Or this passage from Romans chapter 2. You, therefore, Paul writes, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, if we could just park on this last passage from Romans chapter 2, because it leads us to another point that Peter and Paul have in common. If we go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is not only saying that Paul agrees that there is a judgment, and he's not only saying that he agrees that morality matters in our time as a means of behavior. He is also saying that we should rightly understand the seemingly delay in that day coming. I mean, you can almost hear the argument of the false teachers at this point, right? Like if they were standing face-to-face with Peter, that they would be saying something like this. Man, you know, I've heard so many times you Christians talk about the fact that Jesus is going to come back. But here we are. I mean, you've been saying it for years. Here we are, and everything's exactly the same. The sun came up this morning. The seasons change. Had another birthday this year. Nothing is ever different. And just like you can almost hear the false teachers of Peter's day, you can sort of almost hear some people in our day saying similar things, can't you? You Christians, you Christians are always talking about the fact that Jesus is going to come back. You're talking about the fact that God is going to make everything right. You're talking about some judgment that's going to happen because of our actions. But here we are. It's the same today as it was yesterday, same as it's always been. The sun came up this morning, nothing is ever different. And what Peter is saying is that there is a way to drastically misunderstand the seeming delay of that day. That you could misunderstand it as being evidence of God's absence. That there really is no God. He's not here. There's no reckoning. There's no that day that's coming, so God is not real. Or you might misunderstand it as God's apathy. God is real, sure, but he doesn't really care about what's going on here. Otherwise, he would have come back and said everything right many, many years ago. Or you might misunderstand it as God's approval. Well, clearly God hasn't come back and changed anything, so he must approve of everything that's going on on the earth. 
You might misunderstand it in all these ways, but both Peter and Paul say that there is a right way to understand the seeming delay of that day, and the right way to understand it is not that it's evidence of God's absence or his apathy or his approval. The right way to understand it is that the delay is evidence of God's kindness, his patience, that the reason that day has not happened yet is not because God is absent, it's not because he doesn't care, and it's certainly not because he approves of everything happening here, it's because in his great kindness, he wants as many as possible to repent and turn to faith in Christ. It is for salvation that that day has not happened yet. This is what Peter writes. Paul agrees and says, is the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. So that is Paul's first point here. I'm sorry, that is Peter's first point here, is that there is a that day. And his second point flows from that first point, which is that if there is a that day, then the reality of that day should change the way that we live on this day. And to that end, he offers two ways that the reality of that day changes us on this day. The first way that the reality of that day should change us on this day is that ought to change our awareness. Specifically, the reality of that day ought to put us on guard. This is what he says, verse 17, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. He says, if that day is real, then you ought to watch yourself. You ought to be on guard. You ought to take care. You ought to be careful in this world. Now, there is a balance here for us to strike. Because being on your guard does mean that you recognize the reality of false teaching. And it does mean you recognize the danger represented there, but it does not mean that you live with a sense of constant anxiety and fear. I remember very clearly uh, the month of May in 2010 in Nashville, Tennessee. You might remember it too. One of the reasons that I remember it is because it was a Saturday and we were supposed to have a strawberry shortcake themed birthday party that day. Some of you were invited to that birthday party. But early that morning, it started raining and it kept raining and it kept raining and it kept raining. And instead of having a strawberry shortcake themed birthday party, we spent the better part of the next day and a half trying to push room and shop vac water out of our walkout basement. Because of course, that's the time when Nashville flooded. And in the end for us, you know, our, our damage was substantial, certainly not as much as some people in the city, but we had to strip down 
everything in our walkout basement to the bare studs and concrete and rebuild it. And we were out of our house for a number of weeks while we, we did that. And I remember very, very clearly at one point when all of that work was being done, making this solemn oath to myself. It was, I don't care how much it costs, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make sure this never happens again. Which of course is an absurd oath to make to yourself. But nevertheless, as part of putting the house back together, we you know, dug some ditches and made some new drains. We made sure that the gutters were all fixed up. We put waterproof sheeting behind the walls of the basement. We installed a sump pump as a fail-safe so that if water did actually get in, I mean, we did, we did all the things that I could think to do to try and make sure that this thing that had happened would never happen again. And eventually when we moved back in the house, man, I was on high alert. Janet can testify to the fact that it would, you know, I would walk outside and look in the distance and see like the puff of a cloud. Oh, Matt, better get out the ladder. Got to check those gutters, you know, up and pull this stuff out. The thunder would happen at two o'clock in the morning if it thundered. I'd be up for the next three hours pacing the perimeter of the house, putting my ear to the wall. Do I hear any trickles? Are there trickles back there? Just, it was this sense of constant anxiety about the fact that the house was going to flood again. This is not the kind of posture that Peter is advocating for. For me, in those days, my posture was more than awareness. It was more than guardedness. It had drifted into a real sense of fear and anxiety and suspicion that my house was going to betray me again. So we want to be on guard, we want to be aware, but we don't want to be the kind of people that live in that constant state of suspicion and angst and fear. So how do we strike that balance and have this kind of awareness that we should have on this day in light of that day? Well, let me offer three suggestions here. To strike that balance and assume an appropriate posture of awareness, first of all, we ought to be very honest with ourselves about what we are capable of. Pride comes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before the fall. This is from the book of Proverbs. And if that is true, then every single one of us ought to live with a healthy distrust of ourselves. In other words, there ought to never be a moment where we look at someone who was once faithful to the teachings of the Bible, faithfully following Jesus. There ought to be never a moment where we look at someone like that and say something like, I can't believe that that happened. Believe it. Because it can happen to you too. And the first way that we battle it is by recognizing and embracing the fact that we are not above drifting from the truth. It was Jesus himself who told us how insidious and deceiving false teaching can be. He says at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it because false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
So the first way that you're on guard is that you recognize that you are not above drifting from the truth. The second way that you assume a posture of guardedness is that you immerse yourself in the actual truth of God's word. See, one of the problems with false teaching is that false teaching is like a hydra. You cut off one head and another one grows up in its place, right? It's an ever-changing, ever-evolving, ever-moving kind of target. And what that means is that if you wanted to try and name and recognize and spot every single false teaching that has ever existed or exists right now, it's an impossible task. Because the false teaching of today is not going to be the false teaching of tomorrow, and it's not going to be the false teaching of next week. There's always going to be some new kind of false teaching. It's impossible to identify all of them. What is possible, though, what is possible is to become so intimately familiar with the truth, so acquainted with the authentic Jesus, so entrenched in the Bible, that even when the latest version of deviation comes down the pike, you might not know the name of it, but you'll certainly know what it's not. The way that you avoid being fearful and angsty and suspicious of everything in this regard is a matter of focus. You're going to place your focus on the false teaching in an attempt to identify all those things, or are you going to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? That's suggestion number two. And then finally, suggestion number three, in order to assume this posture of guardedness, of awareness, is by remaining in regular, consistent fellowship with other believers. And the reason behind this is really, really simple. It's a lot easier to trick one person in isolation than it is a whole bunch of people. There's a term that has sort of become in vogue in the last four or five years. I'm sure that you've heard it. People talk about it all the time. The term is deconstruction. And generally what people mean when they say that someone is deconstructing or they say I deconstructed my faith is that most of the time it means that they grew up with a certain set of beliefs and something happened in their lives that caused them to begin rethinking those core beliefs that they grew up with. And upon reconsidering those core beliefs, they sort of break them down and deconstruct them. And what most of the time ends up happening at the end of this process is that someone believes a version of Christianity that is no longer orthodox, or they end up leaving the faith altogether. And even though there's a lot of different pathways inside of that catch-all term that people walk, one of the commonalities for most everyone who ends up at that end is that at some point, they stopped going to church. It's a departure from the church. Wandering from the church leads to wandering from the faith. Even when you don't intend for it to be that way, 
If you want to have a posture of guardedness in this day, in light of that day, then one of the simplest things you can do is keep showing up. Students, as you get into high school and you have other opportunities and you got your own wheels and more freedom, keep showing up. If you're going to college and you're moving out of your parents' house in the next few weeks, don't wait six months to find a believing community. Get somewhere, stay somewhere so that you can be on guard. Keep showing up. If you're moving to a new community from Nashville, don't just long for the way that things used to be. Be proactive and as quickly as possible, find a church that believes the Bible and is following Jesus and start showing up. Because wandering from the church always leads to wandering from the faith. So, the reality of that day ought to impact us on this day through our awareness and our guardedness. And the second way that the reality of that way should impact us on this day is through our conduct. It's through our conduct. Peter says at the very first of the passage that we have today that because we're looking forward to this, this is that day that we ought to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now the term in that phrase that should impact us at least a little bit is be found. Because all of us will be found in one state or another when that day comes. And the reason why is because the Bible is very clear about at least two things in regard to that day. The first thing is that there is a that day, and the second thing is that nobody knows when it is. That that day is going to come like a thief in the night. That up until that day, people will be marrying and giving birth and burying and living life. That not even Jesus himself or the angels of heaven know when that day is. So the reality is there is a that day and nobody knows when it is. And because of those two realities, what that means for us is that we will be found in some state. In one sense, that day is not going to be a surprise. At least it shouldn't be because we know that there is a that day. But in another sense, it's going to be a complete surprise because we don't know when that day actually is. So you're gonna be found. And Peter says that when you are found, your conduct ought to have been impacted on this day by the reality of the certainty of that day. And the two couple of words that he uses to describe that conduct are that you ought to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. Now we should be careful here because if we read verse 14 in its isolation, then it might lead us to think, well, the way that we are going to be found or that we should strive for being found is a state of moral perfection. And that's not what Peter is advocating for here. In fact, if you continue down to verse 18, you see that Peter says that we ought to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You put those things together and you find that the way that we should be found is in a continual state of growth in godliness. 
Friends, it's important for us to remember that no one ever arrives in Christianity. This is not an arrival kind of thing. It's not the kind of deal where you walk with Jesus and you reach all these new spiritual heights like you're climbing up a mountain and with each one you're able to look forward and say, man, I'm really making some progress here. I don't have that far to go. No, the great irony of Christianity is that the further you walk with Jesus, the more it seems like there is left to do. Jesus is so unique in this regard, isn't he? I mean, have you ever heard the phrase that you should never meet your heroes? The reason why people say that is because you can look up to someone from afar and you can build up this picture of that person in your mind and you can create a sense of who they are and tell your own story about who that person is. But as you get closer and closer to that person, what you'll inevitably find is that person that has become so huge in your mind will inevitably get smaller and smaller and smaller because the closer that you get, the more that you find that that's just a regular human being with all the traits and quirks and weirdness and all the things that all of us have. Jesus is the only one that gets bigger the closer you get. And this is why you have to grow in grace. It's because the closer you come to Jesus the bigger his shadow is. And you start to see yourself more in light of who he is and you start to realize just how far you have to go and more and more parts of your heart and your soul are exposed and you come to understand just how far short you fall of God's standards. And that's the moment when you realize that there is yet more grace for me to grow into. That the closer you get to Jesus, it's not that God extends or grows his capacity for grace. It's that your understanding of the amount of grace that you need actually gets bigger. And so day by day, day by day, we grow not just in intellectual knowledge about who Jesus is, but we grow in grace. This is the journey that we're on that every single day we move forward. We do it on this day, and then tomorrow becomes this day, and then the next day becomes this day, and we keep growing and keep moving and keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ until one day this day becomes that day. But until that moment, everything on this day is influenced by the reality of that day. We know that on that day, God will execute justice. So on this day, we do not seek revenge. We know that on that day, the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. So on this day, we pursue holiness. We know that on that day, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. So on this day, we stake our hope in his unchanging promises. On that day, we know that he will wipe away 
every tear from our eyes. So on this day, we mourn with those who mourn. On that day, we know that moth and rust will no longer destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. So on this day, we store up treasures in heaven. We know that on that day, the church will be like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So on this day, we commit ourselves to love and serve faithfully in this local congregation. We know that on that day, our present sufferings are not worth compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So on this day, we persevere in faith regardless of circumstance. On that day, we know that these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but that the greatest of these is love. And so on this day, we lay down our lives for our brothers. And on that day, we know that we will hear the loud voice declaring, look, the dwelling of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. And so on this day, we pray, amen. Come Lord Jesus. We do all this and more until someday this day becomes that day. And as Peter closed, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen.